This week, Jaguar Racing Royalty with Alistair McQueen, Chief Engineer for TWR Jaguar. JECpodcast.com Hello, Wayne Scott with you. Welcome to a big episode of the Jaguar Enthusiast Club podcast. It is episode 70. We've made it this far, folks. It's amazing, isn't it? When we started this podcast at the beginning of the first lockdown in 2020 to keep the Jaguar family worldwide in touch, who knew that we'd be 70 episodes deep by now already? And it's great to have you along and great to have your input and feedback on the show. And we do try to cover the stories and cover the interviews and deal with the topics that you want to hear about from within the classic car world. So do keep getting in touch and letting us know what you'd like to hear on this very podcast. You can do that really easily via jcpodcast.com. Just click on the contact button there. And you can leave us a voicemail as well if you'd like to ask a question, if you'd like to leave us a message, or indeed if you'd like to tell us something exciting from your world of Jaguars. And talking of things exciting from the world of Jaguars, there's been a new announcement this week that the JEC, the club that supports this podcast and makes it happen, have announced a new initiative called JEC Tracksport, which aims to create unforgettable driving experiences for all Jaguar owners. And the Jaguar Enthusiast Club have been very excited about announcing this to members. It's a new programme of track, hill climb, sprint and road navigational events under the newly formed brand of JEC Tracksport. So you can find more information on all of that on the news pages at jc.org.uk where there's a full statement on the launch of JEC Tracksport. Also, of course, on the Friday Spotlight e-newsletter and we'll be announcing more from JC Tracksport over the coming weeks here on this podcast and talking to some of you who have been out and enjoyed your cars. Now, an amazing interview on this episode, episode 70 of the Jaguar Enthusiast Club podcast. We're talking, of course, to Alistair McQueen, who was the chief engineer at Tom Walkinshaw Racing during the Jaguar project. His career began in the 70s. And in 1980, he moved to Eddie Jordan Racing. A successful partnership grew then with Martin Brundle in Formula 3. And his move to TWR Jaguar saw him take the position of chief engineer in that successful team that took Jaguar to the victory in 1988 and 1990. He's going to share some amazing memories and insights into that era of Jaguar racing here on this podcast after Richard West inducts another into the Hall of Fame next. Motorsport Heroes with Richard West's Hall of Fame. Well, on this week's Jaguar Enthusiast Club Hall of Fame, we are going back to the TWR era and to a driver who really led the American section of TWR from a driving point of view, at least. It is Davy Jones. Richard, his career started alongside Martin Brundle and Ayrton Senna. Well, I say alongside just behind them because it was him being third on the podium in 1983 in the Formula 3 championship that really got his recognition wasn't it? It was indeed and in fact it was a few weeks ago when you and I you know, were chatting with Tony Dow about his involvement in the IMSA championship for TWR Valparaiso that I suddenly thought you know Davey hasn't had a mention and he deserves it because he's a thoroughly nice bloke and incredibly talented and of course <laughs> He just happened to arrive in the British Formula 3 Championship at a time when uh, one Ayrton Senna and one Martin Brundle were literally on one occasion at each other's throats. That famous photograph when they grabbed hold of each other as a result of an off. And he was, he was outshone by those two amazing stars. But a great guy, a very entertaining guy to be around and also a very, very committed racer. Uh, in the same year, actually, in 83, Bernie Eccleston obviously recognised his talent because he gave him the opportunity to test in a Brabham F1. And at that time, you know, Bernie and Brabham were flying extremely high. And it was a great opportunity for him, but uh, it, it never came to fruition, sadly, to put him in an F1 car. Well, I wonder if it was Bernie trying, as he did at that time, to capture an American audience for Formula One, because that really was the audience that was struggling to see Formula One have a penetration with, wasn't it? And perhaps what they needed at the mm. time was a big American star. And perhaps Bernie thought Davy Jones could have been it. It's interesting you say that because also, you know, in sort of 84-5 period, Beatrice Racing came along, which was nothing to do with, you know, a lot of other things. Carl Haas was involved in it uh, with Patrick Tombay, etc., one of the drivers. But the 
the, the drive to get us into America, we had Detroit, we had Dallas, we had Las Vegas, but it, at the time it just did not seem to spark the imagination like it's done now. If you look at the crowds at the recent Circuit of America's race uh, in F1, you would have seen an enormous crowd there. And I think Daly was part of that push by Bernie to really try and get it. But you, you have to remember also, of course, you'd have been a very <laughs> a young spark or even maybe not even a young spark, Wayne, in those days. I can't remember. What year were you born? 84. Well, there you go. Then you definitely won't remember it because <laughs> IndyCar, IndyCar on the kart series and the Indy series in America at that time was flying incredibly high. And the American psyche at that period did, just couldn't equate uh, an average lap speed of 98.6 miles an hour around Detroit when, you know, you could go to Indy and see 221 mile an hour average laps. So, yeah, I think you're right. A long way around answering your, your point. But in reality, I think Davey was part of that drive by Bernie to try and interest America in Formula One. Well, it had a bit of a flirtation then with BMW with their entry into IMSA at the time. Uh, so how did that translate into him arriving at TWR? Where was the story there? Well, prior to that, in the mid-80s, he actually went off and did uh, the New Zealand Formula Atlantic races, and he um, won the New Zealand Grand Prix, I think, in 84 and 87. But he drove for the factory BMW team, as you say, alongside John Andretti and Watkins Glen. And, of course, during that period, our old mate Tony Dow, his name again, was not only working for the various teams he talked about, teams like Newman, Haas and others, Tony, in his, in his downtime, although there wasn't a lot of it, he used to go off and watch other series and other races. And he saw Davey and struck up conversation in that very laconic way of his. And before you knew where you were, Davey was sort of on Tony's shopping list because he saw that he was competitive. He recognised that he'd been up against the likes of Brundle and Senna, who were also going to be part, or Martin Brundle, part of the team. And he earmarked him, you know, for that future success and getting him involved. He also, you know, you have to really look back at that time. There, there was a lot of American IndyCar and NASCAR talent, but Davey had raced internationally. He'd been to the UK, he'd been to New Zealand, and it was just really ideal when Tony spotted him and thought, right, this guy will make a useful part of the lineup for TWR Jaguar. And of course, he was part of the winning team in 1990 at the 24 Hours of Daytona for TWR, racing that mm -hmm. legendary XJR12 that we were discussing just a couple of episodes ago here on the podcast, along mm -hmm. with uh, Lammers and Wallace, of course. But also, mm -hmm. he's one of the few from that era that continued with TWR right the way through to when they were racing with the Porsche-badged chassis in 1996 and he was part of the winning team then as well wasn't he he was indeed and uh, I've, I've still i'm still in contact from time to time through tony I, I think i've mentioned before i've got this wonderful picture a photograph of the two jags up on the banking and it's signed by everybody except davy and tom and tony down lammers and wallace and you know some members of the crew and i'm one of these days i'm going to get on a plane and fly out there before it's too late to get david's signature on it as well but you're right he did that twr porsche that car that you know went on to to win them on davy was in it and again you know did a great job there as well so yes he, he had a very very good career but he also had a very big accident um in rl indycar racing league because in the 90s, as you know, car, Indy car, Indy racing league, there was a lot of changes of direction for the American single-seater racing scene. And he was at the Walt Disney Speedway in January 97, but he had a, he had a serious shunt there and he hurt himself quite badly. Uh, but he came back from fine. He, he, he's always you know, left him with a neck injury and he actually stepped out of racing for quite a while. But um, as you say, there he was with Team Yost in 97 at Le Mans. Um, he should have been there, but he allowed Tom Christian to take the vacancy um, and therefore, you know, win his first Le Mans Enduro. So he's had a really interesting time. He's been involved in Grand Am Racing. He's been involved in Continental Sports Challenge. But these days, I think at 57 years of age, he looks back fondly on his racing career. Uh, he's still a racing advisor. He does, like myself and you and others, does quite a bit of guest speaking. And uh, he also is an instructor, so he's still there and can look back with pride on, on those Daytona and Le Mans experiences that he had and the contributions that he made to Jaguar through TWR during his younger career. Well, still living in Chicago, where he was originally from, it is Davy Jones, 57 now, on the Hall of Fame here on the JC Podcast. You're listening to 
Super Jaguar Enthusiasts Club podcast. To find out what events you can get along to or to discover local club meets in your region, visit jec.org.uk. On this week's Jaguar Enthusiast Club podcast, we have a really exciting guest. In fact, the last time I spoke to our next guest was on a panel in the wonderful surroundings of Haythrop Park at the Summer Jaguar Festival in May 2019. It was the panel that brought together so many past employees of TWR. We reunited the team with the cars that weekend and on that panel, looking back through the stories of those momentous achievements by Tom Walkinshaw Racing was their chief engineer, Alistair McQueen, and he joins us on the podcast now. Hi, Alistair. Good morning. It's great to have you with us and uh, it's great to have you one-to-one able to talk to us about some of the stories that have guided you through motorsport. So before we get to those amazing TWR Jaguar days that I know everyone listening wants to hear about, let's go back to the very beginning and how your motorsport career began. Were you the sort of child that took apart his toys every Christmas? (laughs) Very much so, really. (laughs) I was told by my mother that I could name every car that passed before I could name all the family. So certainly there was a, a... petrol-veined person uh, emerging in uh, the north of England. Uh, I was born um, in what is now Greater Manchester, but was Cheshire at the point, um, and followed my father's jobs around through the north until I moved down to the south of England, following my O-levels, and did my A-levels at uh, Aylesbury Grammar School in sort of central England. And was motorsport a key part of you growing up? Was it something that you were excited about? Were you a fan? Absolutely. Um, My first real memory of uh, excitement in motorsport was uh, meeting Jimmy Clark in the paddock at Alton Park uh, in the very early 60s. I was certainly a small school kid. My father was from Guns, and so he and Jimmy had a central interest in, in terms of the, the geography. Um, so, yeah, we, uh, we we exchanged pleasantries and had a little chat while he was standing waiting to drive a Lotus 23 in a sports car event uh, at Olden Park. And, of course, he, he was my boyhood hero. Uh, and so to, to realise meeting my hero was um, a big part of my uh, in continuing interest in motorsport. There's something in the water in Duns, isn't there? I said this, we had uh, Doug Niven on with us about a year ago now on the podcast, Uh, of course, the cousin of Jim Clark, and there was a huge motorsport community around that part of the borders, wasn't there? I believe there was, yes. My my father was not really part of it because he left to uh, go fighting and bleeding in India, as he put it, um, playing with motor torpedo boats during the war. Um, when he got back, he was uh, consigned to Aberdeen um, uh, in the textile industry. Uh, and he was then caught in my mother, who was in Anglesey in North Wales. And he bought himself a, a BSA three-wheeler to do the commute in, which I think shows some form of dedication. Mm. Um, and he became uh, chairman of the BSA Front Drive Club in, in later years and had a number of BSA uh, cars, which, of course, originating very much the same part of the world as Jaguars do. Mm, yeah, of course. It's incredible how you sort of have these pockets of the UK that, that give us such talent and Duns and that area of the borders seems seems to always be linked to it. Of course, that's where Border Reavers team were and Acuria Cost came out of and, and so many others. So um, amazing. And so when you went off then to college, presumably there was nothing that you wanted to do apart from engineering. Um, Well, it wasn't quite as simple as that. I I fell into Aylesbury Grammar School, um, which, when I actually look back on it, was actually a prep school for Oxbridge. And from our further math set, 13 of them, 11 went to Oxbridge, one went to Reading, and the other one didn't. And that was me. (laughs) Um, (laughs) I'd started playing music. I I was in a band who were travelling around the country by then, and we had a fair bit of success, but... I very soon discovered I was much better at the back of the hall controlling the sound equipment than I was at the front of the hall playing stuff. So I started my own PA hire um, company, built my own equipment, and spent the early part of the 70s rushing around Europe 
um, controlling uh, rock concerts mostly of American bands who'd come over without equipment and needed a, um, equipment to uh, to put on their shows. Amazing. That that as it turns out is pretty what much what a chief engineer does in motorsport <laughs> because it's all about making sure you have the best technical equipment, making sure it's all working properly, going to a venue, putting on a show, running that show from a technical perspective, taking it all down again and uh, moving on. And I was so used to that that I actually fell into motorsport because of that. When um, a friend of mine, her Brazilian racing driver, Alex Ribeiro, had had a torrid time in Formula One at the, um, the financial hands of Max Mosley, or Mac Mouse, as he puts it in his book, um, and uh, wanted to start his own Formula Two team. And he knew that I could get stuff around countries using ATA carnets and other devices, and uh, asked me would I join his team as, as um, Trucky to uh, get his new Formula Two team around Europe in uh, 2000, uh, sorry, in 1978. That's that was my first exposure to motorsport and the very third race we actually did he managed to win it at the Nürburgring remember this is two years after Nicky Lauda's accident there mm -hmm. and a Formula 2 race containing a lot of very very good drivers Alex managed to uh, conquer and, and win that race um, Keki Rosberg probably somebody you may have heard of mm. uh, came second and a chap called Eddie Cheever finished third um, who I'd go on to work with for three years uh, during the uh, TWR Jaguar era. Of course, of course. Well, it's funny that because I did an audio engineering degree at university and people have often asked me, how did you go from doing that to being in motorsport and being a journalist? You've just explained it, Alistair. You've explained my life. That's great. There's, there's one more out there as weird as us. <laughs> That's great. It's not a, uh, an untrodden path. There's a lot of musical interest in motorsport and vice versa. And there's quite a lot of crossover. But, but I actually found that running Group C races um, and being in control from the pit wall was pretty much the same as controlling uh, a concert uh, from a technical perspective um, as I'd done for a few years in the early 70s. So I, I just fell into it and, and really enjoyed it. And of course, putting that with my passion for motorsport from earlier um, was just a very, very happy coincidence. You ended up then into the mid-70s being totally devoted to motorsport because, of course, then you ended up with Eddie Jordan racing, didn't you? Yeah, that's another happy coincidence that uh, uh, Alex Ribeiro and his, his brother, Fernando Ribeiro, who ran in 79 in Formula Ford, uh, were based in one of the very first units at Silverstone Circuit, uh, next door to um, Marlborough Team Island, who were running a certain Mad Paddy in a Formula 3 car uh, in the, the late 70s, early 80s. Um, Eddie and I got together in the very early 80s, 81, we started working together to form Eddie Jordan Racing. We ran a number of Formula Ford cars, a number of Formula 3 cars. Most notably, uh, we had uh, another Brazilian visitor across uh, to, our, to test our car in 1982, um, a chap called Ayrton Senna. And uh, I became the very first person to strap Senna in a Formula 3 car. Um, a year later, he was the opposition and Eddie Jordan Racing was running Martin Brundle and Dick Bennett uh, and his uh, West Valley Racing team were running Ayrton Senna in what has become known as a, a classic Formula 3 season of uh, Brundle versus Senna. And they were um, really at each other, weren't they, that year? Oh, that, that was a proper, a proper battle, yes. Um, in actual fact, we went into the final round ahead on points uh, because... After nine consecutive defeats in the hands of Senna, um, we, we finally won the race, the combined race of the European and the British series at Silverstone, middle of the year. Um, Senna shunted trying to keep up with Brundle, and uh, Brundle went on to win the race. And that uh, progression continued for the next few races when it was very much uh, they either collided or... Um, Ayrton failed to finish the race, but, uh, and the points tally uh, meant that Brundle actually entered the final race ahead on points. 
the outcome eventually was that Ayrton won the final race and went on to uh, to win the championship. Uh, but both the drivers were obviously seen as good enough uh, to leap straight into Formula One from Formula Three at the end of that year. They often say that the successful engineers have a really close relationship with their drivers. Was that where the relationship started to be built between you and Martin Brundle that would later give you such success at TWR, do you think? I think it's very much the case, yes. Um, the I'd had a good relationship with um, James Weaver in Eddie's Formula 3 car the year before. And if I look at my successes over the years, um, when I've worked with a person previously and we've known and trusted one another, they end in world championships. And that's fortunately what happened between Martin and myself. We failed in the Formula 3 arena against Senna, but I would later take or enjoy a partnership with Martin, taking him to a World Sports Car Championship uh, and on to, to win Le Mans and uh, Daytona. So I kind of felt it was repayment for Martin uh, in our engineer-driver relationship that um, we could go on to have success uh, when we'd ultimately failed in the Formula 3 stages. So, yes, it's very much... a a relationship thing built on a huge amount of trust between both engineer and driver. And I think you see that today in the Bono uh, Lewis Hamilton situation as well, that they, uh, they work together for so long now that the other, the other one only needs to, to give a glance or, or a word and the two understand each other and know which way they're headed. Well, it was exactly that way with Martin and myself. We worked in Formula three together, then years in uh, Jaguar, and um, we had a, an almost tem- telepathic uh, understanding of what the car was doing and how we could improve it and the way we'd improve it together. So, yeah, it's it's a definitely a personal relationship thing and one which, again, in my uh, particular case, has, has worked out as uh, winning championships the second time I work with a driver. So, yeah. <laughs> When you look back on those early days, they must have been days of great learning and growth for both you and Martin. And, and you must have, you must look back on those times and, and sort of have a better view from from a distance, as it were, of what you learnt during those phases. So when you look back, what do you think were the big lessons that you learnt during those early Formula 3 races, during that big season of battling with Senna, that you would then translate to TWR later on? It was, as a race engineer, um, you've got to be obviously technically pretty savvy and understand what's going on with the car. And uh, Martin and I were at that stage beginning to get our heads around uh, ground effects and how it helped and how we could use that to to make the car quicker. But it's also the personal relationship and you're a um, part psychologist, part engineer with uh, racing drivers um, and you encourage them. To, to championships as much uh, as engineer them to championships. I remember a, a very good example of that was uh, Raul Boisel, who, who dropped the car at one of the first races, I think, at Monza in the year, whilst in the lead, when we had a, a, an unexpected heavy rain shower at the Monza circuit, and he was distraught. Um, it was down to me to pick up the pieces, rebuild his confidence, and push him on to, to winning more races and eventually a championship at the end of the year. And that sort of um, thing happens on almost a daily basis with the uh, race engineer versus driver. You've got to share the journey, uh, share each other's um, concerns and um, work with one another to overcome any, any psychological or technical obstacles. Presumably a lot of this was you learning as you went along and and an almost self-taught engineer in the sense that as you just described you'd, you'd come from a different professional background as a route into motorsport so you, you sort of hadn't had those early apprentice days on the tools like so many other engineers had had so how did you manage to to almost teach yourself as you went through in into motorsport in that way the mechanical side of things was not really an issue because, as you pointed out, as a kid, I'd take everything apart and put it back together again. Um, I'd been, I'd <laughs> run my model car club at my school as a as a kid. I'd built cars for everybody else and sold them on. So I'd, I gained the basis of a, a business 
education and a technical education <laughs> in my teen years. <laughs> so I, well, I wasn't without skills. And uh, in the early years, in the late 70s, then I would um, go to build cars at March Engineering over the winter um, because people did you know, a summer season in motorsport and then they went somewhere else to earn some money for the winter because nobody was racing in the winter. And that's how it was. So I picked up a great deal of understanding and, and uh, uh, confidence from building the racing cars at March Engineering and uh, getting a grounding in, uh, in engineering there. I, I ended up uh, running the gearbox shop at March uh, when one of the original uh, gearbox builder left and went to join some to- team called Tolman. But... Uh, I, I had the, I had the um, unfortunate uh, task of building uh, Nigel Mansell's gearboxes when he was in F3, and that was a, a weekly job. Uh, <laughs> he, he wasn't renowned for his finesse. He, he was certainly renowned for being a lion, uh, but not, not his finesse with things mechanical, really. <laughs> Rough on the dogs, as they say, up and down the pit lane. <laughs> yes. We've been through the, the, the Martin Brondewet and Senna season. I'm sure most motorsport fans will know just how competitive that season was. Both those drivers, as you described, got, got spotted very early on and, and went off to Formula One. The next, I guess, milestone in your career is your arrival at TWR. So how did that job come about? How did you meet Tom Walkinshaw and, and how did the, the move happen? It, it all stems from running Martin in F3 uh, because um, obviously Tom was uh, Martin's mentor for quite some time, having uh, plucked him out of obscurity and run him in the BMW County Championship in, in touring cars, uh, almost road-going touring cars at that time. Um, and uh, there was some money available from Tom for a GPA helmet deal, which Tom held the franchise for at that point. And so we advertised GPA helmets and had free GPA helmets during the year of Formula 3. Um, and Eddie Jordan decided that he didn't really want to go and, and meet Tom Walkinshaw in his office. So I was dispatched as the race engineer to go and pick up a check from Tom. <laughs> that was my first meeting with Tom Walkinshaw in 83, uh, when I went to his, his office and picked up a very nice check, uh, which helped with Martin's uh, passage through Formula One. So that was my first meeting with Tom, and um, one which was uh, actually mirrored a few years later, because it was Martin Brundle who put me in that position at Tom Walkinshaw Racing. And, and really urged me to go there um, when I was completely unsure. What tipped the balance was by 85, um, Eddie Jordan was running three teams, an F3 team in British, an F3 team in Europe, and a 3000 team. And I was engineering for two of them, which, to, to be honest, was a little confusing. Uh, so a 3000 car one week and a, a Formula 3 the next, uh, and a different set of drivers was not really what I wanted to do. And I craved the results of winning races and winning championships, which with the pay drivers we were running at that time, wasn't really going to happen. So despite being uh, a recently signed up director of Eddie Jordan Management, which went on to flourish, shall we say, quite well, I uh, gave that away and went at Martin's advice to join TWR on what seemed like a, a fairly uh, difficult passage to get a big V12 engine sports car to run at the head of uh, the, the Group C scene. Um, as it turned out, it was entirely possible because of the, uh, the team that Tom had pulled, put together and the, the backup I had from a very hungry race team. Well, I suppose it was the start of a long career, really, of asking Tom Walkinshaw for checks and money to pay for stuff as you went through <laughs> developing the car. Um, I mean, 1985, if my memory serves me correctly, was, was the year that Martin actually had to leave TWR because of contractual reasons for his Formula One commitments. Was that right? So did you right. sort of arrive I'm, as he disappeared? Yeah, at the, towards the end of... I uh, transferred to TWR at the end of the green car era. Um, 
uh, and revised the car completely to the 86 specification silk cut car um, to head up the, the, the engineering side of things uh, to run cars for Warwick, Cheever, um, Brancatelli and Jean-Louis Lesser. So that, that was my, my first job was to revise what, uh, what the green car had been, um, put together a car which was lighter, stronger, reliable, faster for the 86 season, um, which was quite a lot of work. I mean, it was quite a few late nights. <laughs> mm, I imagine. Well, of course, you had the amazing uh, tub and, and chassis design there by Tony Southgate. You had a fantastic engine builder in Alan Scott, and we had both of those sat with us on that panel I mentioned at the start of the interview. But what was, I guess, wrong with the car when you arrived? Where were they at? in terms of their development and what was your your first big job to turn the fortunes around because it's fair to say twr jaguar had been struggling up to that point hadn't they yeah whilst uh, uh, martin uh, i think led one of the the, the mossport race in 85 um the car was obviously full of gremlins not totally reliable and about 50 kilos overweight um the other biggest concern was that the aerodynamic center of pressure of the car was too far back and we weren't getting the front downforce that it required um, to allow the center of pressure, uh, the center of downforce to sit on the central gravity of the car. So uh, Tony and I worked on the aerodynamics and he had a very skillful solution as to how to move the center of pressure forward in the car, which meant starting the tunnels earlier which was right under the driver's seat as opposed to at the back of the monocoque where they the 85 car had started so the tub was revised with a, a infill panel to allow the, the tunnels underneath the car to, to uh, uh, start earlier and therefore pull the center of pressure forward um, so we had a much revised aerodynamics due to that uh, for the car and then my uh, job was to remove 50 kilos from the car. Wow. <laughs> I, was helped, I was helped by Alan Scott, who, who managed to get rid of about 20 kilos from the engine, I think, and its ancillaries. And we had a look at every component of the car um, and revised everything we could to improve the reliability and uh, reduce the weight, which was a fairly arduous task. But we certainly um, had a great uh, car even if neither of them finished, I think, for the first race in 86, uh, which ended in a very, very messy party um, in the, the Hotel de Ville at Monza, um, which uh, was probably the, one of the biggest celebrations I, I think I attended in TWR, and yet neither car had finished. But what <laughs> we did know is the car was going to be quick, and the, the problems we'd had with the car could be fixed which was, you know, the, the sort of beginning of the light show. And, of course, we did win the, the Silverstone race that year. And we actually challenged for the championship all the way through to the Japanese round at the end of that season. So, yeah, it was, um, that was the, the year of, uh, of hard work and uh, fixing the car to, to become a reliable motor car. And then uh, from 87 onwards, we had a weapon. Uh, to work with, which pulled Le Mans wins championships and uh, various other accolades. Mm. And looking through the progression of those cars, it's very clear that as you arrived, there were other changes to the cockpit in particular, weren't there? Because, you know, you described earlier that you have to be sort of part psychologist, part engineer. You can see that... There was work done at that point to make the general layout of the dashboard, the cockpit, how the drivers sat to be far more user-friendly for them to reduce fatigue. And also so that there was a big difference in height, for example, between a lot of the drivers that you had so that they could all drive the same car in the same seat and there wasn't that big transition between drivers. Was that a conscious thing you did at the time with the car? Very much so. In fact, the last drawing I actually ever did uh, for motorsport was for the dashboard of the 86 C Group C Jaguar um, because I didn't get to do much drawing after that. Um, but the, the, the dashboard I drew. And then um, we had uh, yeah, a base shell for the seat position uh, and packers inserted into that for each individual driver and seat belts which could be adjusted 
on the fly, as it were, or as you entered or exited the pit lane to uh, to accommodate the drivers of different heights. And uh, between Jan Lammers and Eddie Cheever, there was six or seven inches, which meant um, it was quite a universal seat. And uh, Jan's seat packer was uh, like a, a kiddie seat, which sat in the uh, in the uh, basic shell, which uh, Eddie Cheever um, sat in without any uh, additional packing. But uh, yeah, it was uh, it was something that uh, stayed with me for for quite some time, and I I really finished the job off um, years and years later um, at the uh, the set of uh, uh, Tom Christensen. Uh, who won Le Mans nine times and his insistence that he'd actually didn't drive the car quickly until he was perfectly helped and and uh, satisfied with the ergonomics of the car and that the car was working for him, not against him. And that was the start of my journey of uh, getting group seat cars to work with the driver, whether it was through ergonomics or through the handling, which was finished for me uh, when I was working at Bentley by... Tom Christensen actually not bothering to drive the car quickly at all until such a point that he was fully comfortable with the car. And uh, that's that, that a continued education throughout my 30-odd years in, in sports car racing. And this is what sets single-seater racing apart from endurance racing, isn't it? Because of that added element of trying to uh, preserve and reduce the fatigue and discomfort of the driver behind the wheel. It's not so important when you've got a sort of maximum two-hour race, 50 laps in a single-seater, but endurance racing demands that that driver is fresh at all times. That's what makes success, isn't it? It is. Some really great analogies from the F1 world to the uh, um, sports car world, but very often it's um, people like Eddie Cheever who actually wrote me a great letter at the end of his tenure at TWR saying, thank you so much that, you know, I, I've really begun to enjoy my racing again. And I, I, I turned up thinking I was going to be a glorified taxi driver. Well, actually, I learned more than I, I taught in the sports car arena and ended up a much more rounded driver. And I think, again, another modern confirmation of that is Fernando Alonso after winning Le Mans a couple of times with the Toyota and without the selfishness of Formula One, has turned up back into Formula One as a much more rounded character and a much better driver. And I think the, the selfishness of Formula One has to be extracted from the drivers who drive in sports cars. And they've got to realize very quickly that they don't do it on their own. There's a big team behind them. Um, and there's another driver who's got to drive the same car and does drive the same car. And so they become a lot less selfish and a lot more centered on the team winning and they being part of that team and a good part of that team. Uh, so it, it affects them quite a bit. And a lot of them come in there. Certainly the F1 drivers came in, you know, we're F1 drivers. We don't need to know anything about this. We, we, we can do this. Um, and they actually went away having learned quite a great deal about themselves and about motorsport from driving group C cars. Interesting. A different level of maturity as a driver required. And I think also that's impressed upon drivers by the fans themselves, isn't it? Because in sports car racing, people do tend to support teams almost more than drivers, which is not the case in Formula One. You, you very rarely hear of a sort of, you know, Jordan fan or a, you know, Benetton fan. It's generally a fan of the driver, no matter what team they're racing for. But in sports cars, they are genuine fans behind the brand that is running the team, aren't they? Very much so, yes. I think that's a, a good summary of, of how sports car and, and uh, F1 differ. And again, if we take this selfishness bit back to, to, to F1, the the selfish downforce which is being created by Formula One cars in recent years is really analogous of the drivers to some degree. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, in, in, in sports cars, using ground effect, which, surprise, surprise, uh, F1 cars will be using again next year, um, there wasn't the same interruption in somebody else's vehicle that the dirty air behind a current Formula One car created. And these guys were able to race one another on the circuit at close quarter without this uh, selfish cloud 
uh, lasting four or five seconds behind the uh, the, the um, car in front of them. So, yeah, sports car racing is certainly less selfish in a lot of ways than, than Formula One racing. Let's go now to 1988 and that momentous year where Jaguar finally took the win at Le Mans. Of course, they'd won the World Championship the year before. There were several other victories in 1988 that led up to that June. But there is something special about Le Mans. You know, all races are important to win, of course, but that is the big one, isn't it? It's the one that that puts the team on the world stage. Was there a moment in the run-up to Le Mans in 1988 where you thought, this is our year? Or was it literally just head down get the job done and it happened almost without realizing it a bit of both really because tom has always insisted to to jaguar that this was a three-year program uh and this was our third year at le mans 86 we i don't know whether they had a car finish even um 87 we'd had a car finish i think fourth um and we were now supposedly completely prepared for this one um there was a battalion of cars and um, it was time to get the job done. As it turned out, Jan Lammers and uh, Andy Wallace and Johnny Dumfries did get the job done, but it, it perhaps wasn't the car we expected to get the job done. It was um, a car which uh, was uh, set up by a happy coincidence um, by Eddie Hinckley um, to make it easier to drive for the, uh, the pilots. And in doing so, in raising the front right height, lowering the rear right height, he um, he made it go a lot quicker down the straights and be less pointy in the corners, which eased the driver's load and actually made it raceable with the turbo Porsches uh, down the straights. And it was his um, setup of that car which eventually netted um, Lammers and Co. the, the win. So uh, I think... Uh, I might have been the chief engineer, but it was Eddie Hinckley's uh, unintended brilliance that uh, to actually uh, to actually chase the uh, the um, that particular aspect of the the driver's requirements for them on that, that netted us the win. And of course, it only came out much later that it very nearly all ended in disaster when one by one all the gearboxes started to have problems, didn't they? Yes, we we had. Uh, I mean, transmissions in Le Mans have had a long history together. I think uh, up to uh, the turn of the century, something like 60% of retirements at Le Mans are transmission-related. And it's really a hard uh, course for transmissions and different drivers in the cars. And I think we've already gone uh, hard on the dogs. Uh, that the drivers have to be careful with a, a, a manual transmission box. And it wasn't really till the turn of the century and paddle shifts controlled by computers that transmissions became less of an issue at Le Mans. So gearboxes were always, obviously the designer wants a gearbox that's as light as possible, um, but we want one as an engineer that's going to be durable enough to withstand everything that the circuit and the drivers can throw at it over a 24-hour period. And it doesn't take much for a driver to to nudge the edges off a, a few dogs, uh, which start jumping out of gear, putting all sorts of strains through the gearbox and um, making the whole thing inoperable. So uh, when Audi started there in early in this century, um, they were adept at changing the whole back end of the car during the race in six or seven minutes, still because of the uh, the fragility of any available transmission to, to get through that race uh, without a problem. Mm-hmm. Yes, and of course they got so good at it that the ACO had to start introducing regulations <laughs> to stop them doing it quite so easily. <laughs> talk us through the race then in 1988 because there were so many ups and downs. There was sorts of uh, gifts given to the Jaguar team when moments like Ludwig's Porsche ran out of fuel. And as the story of that race played out, what were the highlights and lowlights of those 24 hours that you remember? Well, certainly I, I remember that my car didn't make it, the car I was running, um, uh, and uh, that, that was a frustration. But at that point, you, you foc- refocus on your, your job, not as race engineer, but as chief engineer, to see what you can achieve 
um, within the team itself and uh, assist the other race engineers to get the best out of the car and the driver. Um, Le Mans is always a snakes and ladders game. You never know when you're going to step, step on a snake and you, you never know when you're occasionally going to get a leg up like happened uh, to, to Ludwig in the, in the Porsche. And there it was one of the challenges just taken out of our, uh, out of our control and out of the race virtually. So it was, you never really can, can predict what will happen at Le Mans. Um, so you just take it as, as read that you will not be in the same position as you were uh, a few minutes ago. And if that doesn't happen, then, you know, you're really surprised. And we were really surprised, to be honest, to be leading the race at the end. Even more surprised to find out that uh, it was uh, very, <laughs> a very fragile car, which eventually um, crossed the finish line in first place. But uh, you take them and um, you get on with it. There's one of those racing myths that has been talked about in pub bars for the 30, 40 years since that victory, that as that number two car came over the line, there was, of course, that fantastic photo finish of the three silk-cut jags line astern as they come to finish. But the story goes that Tom basically said, look, uh, Lammers is stuck in fourth gear or whatever gear it was. If it fails, push him over the line. Is that true or is it a myth? Tom seems to remember it as being true. Uh, I think it, it probably was. Um, <laughs> and he, he gave him a job of work to do. Uh, just get Lammers over the line. I mean, it would have been messy, um, but it was it was certainly possible for a you know, half lap or a lap at the end of the race. But it didn't come to that and um, it didn't have to happen. So I'm very pleased about that because I haven't actually tried pushing one Group C car with another one. And it could get awfully expensive. Yeah, I imagine. I'm sure there'll be a regulation somewhere that someone would pull out of a book to tell you that uh, it must uh, come over under its own momentum or something. But, uh, yeah, thankfully it never came to that. Um, well, it, there's certainly regulation to say that the uh, the last lap must be completed within 10 minutes. So you can't... And so people sit in the pits before the end of the race and go and do a final lap to, to qualify for the finish. But I don't think there's anything that, that says... That the, the car must be <laughs> powered solely by its own engine. <laughs> it's great to put these stories to bed, you know, to find out from the people that were actually there. I guess that is the desperation of the final lap of Le Mans. You'll try anything. Yeah, and another thing that uh, people don't realise that all the members of the crew have been up for in excess of 30 hours, and some of them nearly 40 hours at that point. So there's a slight distortion of, of reality uh, because of tiredness, really. I mean, I, I've, I remember sitting on the pit wall at four o'clock in the morning at Le Mans uh, and looking at my stopwatch because you always look at the, the, the watch to know where the car is, and this is before fully televised races and so on. Um, and at uh, three minutes 40, you expect the car to pitch up at the, uh, the turn at the bottom of the pit straight, and you can tell by the lights and the engine note it's probably your car. Later on, it will be confirmed by an ident light, which comes into view closer to, to yourself. But I remember looking at my stopwatch and thinking, now, does two come before three or does three come before <laughs> two on the watch? You, you are absolutely so knackered that you, sometimes you, you literally cannot think straight. Uh, so the fatigue on the pit wall at Le Mans is, is very real and you have to be slapped about a bit to get back into the mode when, you, when you've been sitting on a uh, at, at the stopwatch or the pit wall for a, for a little while. Mm. It's the same for the journalists and the media crews covering it as well. I'd forgotten how to operate a camera at one point at Le Mans at about 4am, so I know the <laughs> feeling. Um, <laughs> and people always think, oh, well, you know, 24 hours, it's a long time to be up. But it's not just the race, because what a lot of the fans don't realise is the team have been there for two weeks beforehand and and the scrutineering is when it really starts to get busy of course and that was the previous sunday so it's not yes. just the race itself is it it's all of the days leading up to it and especially if a driver god forbid puts the car in the wall in free practice or qualifying you know it, it's a it's a big effort yeah. before the 24 hours even begins Yes, at, at that race, in the 1988 race, I managed to present five cars to scrutineering, each an inch too long. Um, I, I even got a, a phone call from Sir John Egan personally. Well, it was actually to Tom, but he handed the phone straight to me 
uh, to explain <laughs> why all our cars were illegal and why the press were saying, Jaguar cars illegal at Le Mans scrutineering. So that was uh, one of my more difficult moments. Yeah, I can imagine. <laughs> <laughs> but what, what had actually happened, for the prototype car, we'd made adjustable uh, rear wing mount plates. Production items didn't arrive until we were in the paddock at Le Mans on the Monday prior to, to scrutineering. And as the, the cars never get the wings put on uh, to go in the truck, we put the new wing plates on, uh, put the cars in the truck, crawled down to uh, scrutineering, mounted the wings there, and they weren't measured until they were actually measured by the, the scrutineers. And each of them was an inch too long. There'd been a, a little failure in the, in the drawing office in, in terms of the uh, uh, placement of the rear wing end plate mount holes at the top. But uh, that was very soon um, recovered and we, we redrilled the, the mount plates and put some fish plates at the front of the, uh, the, the mount holes and everything was fine after a couple of hours' work uh, on the day of scrutineering. And we went back, or, or the scrutineers came back to us on the Wednesday morning, passed all the cars and everything was fine. But um, in the moment, when you get a phone call from the chairman of Jaguar, uh, for not a good reason, um, it can be a little off-putting. Yeah. But fortunately, he spoke to me again after the race, um, <laughs> this time in a more congratulatory tone, and um, that was all put to bed. Well, join us on next week's podcast where we continue our conversation with Alistair McQueen as we discuss just what went wrong for TWR Jaguar in 1989, how Alistair brought things back for the victorious year in 1990, and then how he took his learnings from TWR to take two other great British brands back to Le Mans, MG and Bentley, in the 2000s. It's all on the next episode, episode 71 of the Jaguar Enthusiast Club podcast. That's all for this episode of the Jaguar Enthusiast Club podcast. Don't forget to keep in touch with us here on the JEC podcast via www.jecpodcast.com and you can get in touch with us very easily by using the voice recorder on there to leave us a message or you can use the contact form if you prefer to write your messages. Don't forget, you can also join the Jaguar Enthusiast Club online by clicking the Join Today button on the top right-hand corner of the podcast page to enjoy all the benefits plus the fantastic, glossy, 130-page monthly magazine that's all included in your membership of the worldwide Jaguar family that is the JEC. This is the Jaguar Enthusiasts Club podcast. Subscribe for new episodes at jecpodcast.com.